I would like to pay my respects to all Aboriginal people who fought in the frontier wars, which began as early as 1788 until the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continued to fight. I would also like to pay my respects to all the mobs across this beautiful continent. Each episode, I will speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books, oral histories, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the frontier wars, and these are our war stories. I would like to welcome everybody to episode 11 of Frontier War Stories. In episode 11, I will be yarning with Mark Dunn, uh, author of The Convict Valley, uh, Bloody Struggle of Australia's Early Frontier. Um, I've been yarning with, uh, with with Mark for quite some time now, over um, a couple of months, actually, um, to, to try and lock him in, um, to get him on the podcast um i've got new equipment as well so um we've, we've tried to have a chat in the past and, and that equipment uh wasn't up to scratch so um it's 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 good to finally have mark um on the, uh, on the program um mark as i mentioned is the author uh, of um this book that will we'll chat about the book but then also um you know some of the stuff he talks about within the book as well and the importance of sort of uncovering this history as well i know from chatting with mark before that um within sort of the process of looking at earlier frontier um and, and i guess this is sort of something that, that happens with uh the majority of sort of the historians that i've spoken with as well as you know and, and i guess i and myself as well, sort of looking at this period time, is when I began looking at this sort of period, um, I sort of unraveled many different things that I didn't know um, about sort of uh, uh, um, um, how these times, whether that was how Aboriginal people uh, resisted or the relationships that Aboriginal people had amongst themselves or also uh, with, um, you know, uh, settlers and, and Europeans and sort of these other people, whether they were uh, conflicts or sort of um, other relationships are built. And I think one of the interesting things about this conversation is that <clears throat> I think Mark will sort of touch on um, those relationships that were built um, in the early days. Um, and I guess without further ado, uh, thanks, Mark, for coming on and, and having a chat with us. Yeah, thanks, Bo. It's good to um, finally catch up. Yes, yes, no, it is, it is. Um, as I mentioned, your book, uh, The Convict Valley, uh, which came out earlier this year, um, which focuses on, and if yeah, people are wondering where, it's focusing on sort of um, the Hunter Valley uh, in and around sort of the Newcastle area, um, broader areas around Newcastle as well. Um, I, I guess, yeah, just to kick it off, could you sort of tell us a, a bit about um, the landscape of where uh, your book is sort of focused on? Yeah. For sure. So you're right. It's in um, based around Newcastle, which is you know, two hours north of Sydney, and into the Hunter Valley itself. So way up the top of the valley, around what is Murrundi, before it goes up onto the Liverpool Plains and out towards Tamworth. So the Hunter Valley is it's actually the longest river valley on the east coast. Mm. Um, so it's a pretty big space, and it's got obviously the Hunter River runs down through it from uh, you know, the tops of Barrington Tops in the mountains down and empties into the sea at Newcastle. And there's another two or three major rivers, actually, the Williams and Patterson River, which are in the, the lower end, sort of around the Maitland, Raymond Terrace area. They also come down out of the Barrington Mountains. And then you've got the Goulburn River that comes across from the sort of southwest or the west which comes through from the Great Dividing Range and that kind of area. So you've got four major rivers, and they all meet essentially around the area between kind of Singleton and Maitland. Singleton's about an hour inland from the coast. So between sort of Newcastle at the coast and up to Singleton Musselbrook area, which has now got a lot of coal mines in it, but that's essentially a fairly flat alluvial place, um, which was obviously well um, populated by Aboriginal people before the British ever turned up, and that's where a lot of the foodstuffs were, the yams, the, um, the game, the kangaroos and emu and all the rest that they were after, as well as forests. And then as you go further into the valley, the mountains on both sides get closer and closer and it gets more rugged and narrow and, um, you know, inaccessible. So 
the actual landscape changes from the coast all the way in, and that we'll talk about it later, but that has a, an effect on the way that the whole sort of colonial story plays out in that area as well. Definitely, because um, I remember chatting with you before and sort of um, looking at some of the reviews of the book as well um, and having a bit of a look at it myself, um, the sort of different phases that sort of this part of country, <clears throat> well, that, 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 that this land goes through and those phases, you know, um, affect or, you know, have, you know, show the sort of different relationships that um, come up, I guess, within over that time period. So, you know, Sydney's set up. Um, um, so I guess to paint a picture, we're looking at 1788 when the colony is set up um, in Sydney around Botany Bay. Um, and then from having a chat with you, uh, Newcastle was sort of the second area that was set up as another s sort of penal colony area to sort of take uh, prisoners. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So Sydney is obviously where they're dumping all the convicts at the start. And that's the, kickoffs for everything. <laughs> um, and then Newcastle Newcastle starts as, a, as an official British settlement in 1804 uh, and and it's a place of what they call a penal station. So it's it's where a convict, if they re-offend in Sydney, so, you know, you get caught breaking into the house or you get caught stealing food or whatever, um, you would be re-transported to Newcastle. And it was a place... Uh, you would go to work for a set period of time. So it might be six months or a year or three years, or you could be sent there at what they call the governor's pleasure, and that meant you were just there until they decided you could go back to Sydney, um, and you'd be sent to Newcastle to work in coal mines and or cutting timber. Um, so they were after cedar trees particularly for all the building work, and also they were doing stuff like um, burning lime, which meant that what they were doing is they were excavating all the huge, huge Aboriginal middens around the Newcastle Harbour and, and crushing the shells down and, and then uh, making them for cement. So it was a hard labour camp, really. Mm -hmm. And then I guess yeah. if anybody sort of knows Newcastle now and sort of the Hunter Valley, it's it's sort of one of the biggest exports of coal um, on the east coast of Australia. Um, any coal that's sort of coming out of Australia um, usually goes through uh, the port of Newcastle. Um, you know, um, I know personally for myself, um, you know, being sort of somebody who's sort of anti sort of mining and stuff, I've been, to, you know, I've interacted with people who sort of been to actions down that way. But anyways, that's sort of neither here nor there for this conversation at the moment. Um, so after this sort of phase of sort of setting up this part of, um, you know, I guess reestablishing sort of a new colony um, and a new penal setup, um, it goes through this period of, of of a prison, which I guess a little, a little bit later we'll sort of come back and chat about that as well. But I sort of want to go through the different phases that you know, this yep. area was. So then when did it become sort of coal mining? and or, or So when did sort of, the, you know, it end as sort of a prison sort of set up uh, for convicts who re-offended um, up in Sydney? And then what sort of progressed after that? Yeah, okay. So it's a prison from 1804 till... Well, officially 1822, but it's sort of about 1820 that it starts to, to end. So what, when, when the prison was happening, there was no um, free settlers allowed into the Hunter at all. There's no farmers, there's no, no one taking up any land, except for a few ex-convicts who had, were at Newcastle and were allowed to have a farm as sort of a, you know, a rehabilitation kind of exercise, but they weren't technically free settlers. And then in 1820, some um, guys out of Windsor in, in north well, northwest Sydney, they def they um, make their way through the mountains and come into the Hunter Valley. And I should also say they, you know, everyone when you look at Australian history, it's all these explorers we talk about making their way somewhere and finding their way. Well, this guy John Howe wouldn't have got anywhere without an Aboriginal guide. He had a he had a couple of Aboriginal guides with him. And they found a way through the mountains, and it, of course, it was a it was a track that had been used by Aboriginal people to connect back and forth between the Hawkesbury and the Hunter for millennia. So we should just make a point that it wasn't John Howe that found his way. But anyway, either way, they find their way through, and that is the end of the penal station. Because one of the things about Newcastle that they were 
that was an advantage is what convicts found it very difficult to escape back to Sydney. But once you have a track marked, of course, that's no longer the case. So then what happens is they open up the whole Hunter Valley to free settlers and all the, the convict penal station moves north to Port Macquarie. And that's, that's the next story. And then up to Brisbane. So, you know, that's where that goes. And then from 18, sort of 22 onwards, they just start granting land into the Hunter. And one of the things that makes the Hunter a bit different than other places is it's the Hunter Valley where they start experimenting with um, a sort of post-Governor Macquarie era of giving land um, to rich British settlers and the amount of land you got depended on how much money you could stump up, essentially. So what you find is that the farms that have been granted in the Hunter Valley are massive and taking up. So the land gets taken up by British very, very quickly. Um, mm. Whereas in some other places, you know, it's more gradual kind of um, exploitation, if you like. But in the Hunter Valley, it's the first place where they really just take it, take it all within about two or three years. And I guess, yeah, you know, like you... Um, and these are sort of wealthy sort of British, um, you know, people who are either living in Sydney or, or, or maybe even back in Britain who sort of acquire this land... Um, and with, you know, um, you know, I guess with X amount of wealth, you know, behind them as well. So, you know, they're, they're at the point where they can sort of establish, you know, uh, their lands quicker than what sort of other people can um, in, in sort of different parts of the country as well. Um, and then when does sort of, um, I don't know, if, like if this is sort of like years down later in, in, in sort of the timeline of, of what's happening in Newcastle, when does it sort of become sort of like the coal mining sort of place that sort of Newcastle is, is sort of renowned for um, uh, yeah. nowadays as well? And, and I'm, yeah. is, is that sort of like years, decades, you know, centuries later or, you know, and, and like what's still happening along um, – uh, um, you know, through time uh, as well, like you know, um, <clears throat> and 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 is sort of Newcastle, you know, used still as sort of this big farming sort of uh, land that you know, I guess uh, when these sort of wealthy British people uh, brought it back then, is it still sort of you know used for the for the same things uh, today as yeah. well? Yeah, So the the coal stuff, I'll talk to that first. So. The coal mines, um, they run right through that penal station um, time. And listen, they're not very big. They're, they're reasonably, um, they're getting a fair bit of coal out, but they're more of a punishment thing than an economic thing. And so they're not massive. And for people who know Newcastle, those coal mines are down around the harbour underneath what is now Fort Scratchley. Um, so down right on the harbour and, the, and they're all convict done. Once the farming starts, so in 1822 or whatever, the farming kicks off, that's the main industry for probably the next 10 years. And the, the coal mines keep going and they're, they're government run with convicts, but they're just not very efficient. And to be honest, there's not a lot of use for coal. They are exporting some of the coal, but it's not something that there's a lot of use in Australia for. There's not many steam engines happening at that point. But the coal really then kicks off in about 18... I think it's 1830. So what happens is one of the really, really big um, farm estates is actually given to a corporation in London called the Australian Agricultural Company. And they get a million acres, which is all of Port Stephens. Uh, this probably runs across a whole bunch of the um, podcasts you've already done, actually, because their land runs from Port Stephens right up the back through Gloucester and up across Walker up towards Tamworth and out across the Peel River. So they have this massive um, farm sort of estate where they're running sheep and all the rest of it. But the guy that they send out to look after it all is also has some engineering background and he has a look at the coal mines in Newcastle and they do a deal with the government to take over those coal mines. And so once the British agricultural company takes over the mines, then the Newcastle coal mines become much more efficient and they really kick off. And that's when the coal industry really starts in, in Newcastle. So that's that one going. Mm. And then on the other side, you've got all the farms that are going up into 
the Hunter Valley. And yeah, these guys aren't involved in coal mining so much. They're more interested in sheep and cattle. And um, they also, so Newcastle becomes a, a two sort of cities. You have one with the coal mines happening and the other one is you've got all these guys who have got their sheep and cattle who are also then opening up warehouses and shipping sections and all the rest of it to sort of export their produce as well. So it's, Newcastle becomes a industrial city and a kind of um, exporting agricultural city. Mm. Um, I guess what, what just sort of came to mind when you were saying all that was, uh, where I guess where is and how is Sydney sort of set up in and around this time as sort of Newcastle is sort of I don't know you know I guess you could say is is sort of you know, or will blossom once they sort of you know turn that sort of you know uh, those lands uh, when they can get a profit off those um, how. How fast is sort of, and I don't know if you know this, but how, how fast is sort of Sydney progressing in this time frame as well? Because um, you know, parts of Sydney is sort of set up as a penal colony as well. Is that sort of yeah. that for quite some time, or, or are they sort of you know going out and developing sort of land as well, or um, or, or are they sort of on the frontier, so still sort of you know battling with sort of different Aboriginal uh, nations as well? Yeah, so it's happening um, in in parallel really Sydney's building a lot quicker than Newcastle and Hunter Valley is and you know, they, the Hunter never gets anywhere near the Sydney kind of scale so okay, yeah. for example I think you've spoke you spoke a while back to you know, Stephen Gaps and mm-hmm. that the, the Sydney Wars he talks about in 1816 and the rest of it that ends up at Appen um, that is happening at the same time someone's car alarm's going off here um that's happening at the same time that in Newcastle you've just got the penal station happening. So, um, you know, Sydney's expanding at the same rate, if you like, out west as the Hunter Valley. Um, but they're going much, much quicker because all the ships that are coming into Australia with convicts pretty much are going through Sydney. So you're getting a lot more people into the Sydney area and going up west towards Bathurst than you are getting up towards the Hunter Valley. And one of the reasons being is because they've given out so many huge, huge, huge farms in the Hunter Valley that actually after about 1828 or 29, it gets much more difficult for the British settlers to get their sort of foothold into the Hunter because it's already all gone. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And I, um, and I guess like we'll, we'll, we'll get back on track now so um you know we've spoken about sort of you know newcastle being set up you know uh um for reoffended reoffending prisoners um in sydney uh convicts um and then so it's so slowly shifts towards um you know new new south Wales, sydney you know sort of doing deals to give um give out land to pastoralists and and that as well and and sort of around this time um some of the people who are owning these lands you know also buy some of the coal mines as well um you know um are we seeing lots of you know and, and so, so so the so there'll be lots of people sort of coming into these areas looking for employment or even just sort of prisoners sort of you know you know working off their sort of their sentencing or whatever um we're seeing lots of people here as well so now can we sort of have a discussion about sort of you know the relationships whether they were formed or not or you know when the conflict sort of starts between aboriginal people um i guess whether it's the convicts or whether it's sort of you know are the landowners at this time yeah. as well yeah, okay. Yeah, so listen, it starts almost immediately. It's interesting. The first um, sort of stories we have out of the Hunter Valley about Aboriginal people are, are, are good ones, as you'd, you'd you know, expect or hope. It's in 1790, we have five convicts actually escape from Newcastle. So this is before, oh, sorry, from Sydney. And this is before Newcastle is even set up as a, well, before anyone even knows there is the Hunter Valley, any of the British know that there's a Hunter Valley. So these five guys escape from Sydney and they um, they steal a boat and they get washed onto the beach just near Port Stephens and they actually get taken in by the Warramai people there and live with them for the next five years and they have wives and they get traditional names and they go through initiation and all the rest of it. So 
the first story is really quite um, quite good, and these guys they eventually get recaptured um, and come back to Sydney and tell everyone all about it. And then two years later, two of them escape again and return to what well, we think they return to Newcastle to live with the people. So that's good. But once the word's out that there's coal and timber and stuff around, you have a lot of Sydney merchants sending boats up there to get stuff before anyone else can get their hands on it. And it's in those first years about from about 1796 till 1804 when the convict station set up that you get increasing reports of um, violence against these British merchant um, sort of traders. And essentially what's happening and, and some of the early people who keep the journals like David Collins talk about is that these people, we don't know exactly what's going on up there, but he says they're behaving badly. Now, you know, that can be, who knows what behaving badly means, but I suppose we can probably guess what that's meaning. And I, and that's the first stirrings of Aboriginal resistance in the area. And it's probably because they're either um, in there cutting trees and you know, desecrating cultural lands and, and or they're attacking people or shooting at people or attacking the women. Who knows what they're doing? But there's certainly the start of a resistance before the penal station's even even set up. So that's already happening. Mm-hmm. Once the penal station gets set up, things are a bit different because you've got a British army present in the area. And so there's a bit more... Um, there's a little bit more order, if you want to call it that. So the, the yeah. convicts are there to work, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, and the soldiers are there to make sure they do work. And they also they're, they are there to protect them, and they talk about um, soldiers having to protect convict uh, working parties from, from attack. And so Aboriginal people and warriors are still kind of still defending their land during that period, but it, it quietens right down because you don't have any of the merchants going there. So there's no one who, no one's there who is, isn't under some kind of supervision. Um, and the, the people that are running at the commandants at Newcastle start using Aboriginal sort of um, trackers essentially to chase and return runaway convicts. And they pay them in, in tobacco and blankets and things like that. So you have a different, kind of relationship where um, the convicts aren't under kind of, they're not roaming around as much and so they're not stumbling into places where they shouldn't be and, the, and there's, not a, there's not a huge number of them so they're pretty confined around Newcastle. So there's probably not as much, um, yeah, there, there's just not as much um, opportunity, if you like, for the British to be as violent as they they are later. Having said that, there is still plenty of um, pushback against by Aboriginal people, and and what we what it usually is is that the soldiers are really defending, or the ones that are getting attacked the most are what the lime getting kind of crew. So what they're doing, as I was saying earlier, is they're the ones that are cutting into middens and and burning middens, um, and they're the ones that get attacked the most. So you can see that, I, well, I think what you can see there is that the Aboriginal people, like the Warramai people and the Wabakal people around Newcastle um, are trying, I think, trying to defend those middens because the middens you know, uh, represent tens of thousands of years of occupation and there might be burials and all sorts of stuff happening in there. So that's what, that's the sort of resistance that's happening during that penal period yeah um interesting you know um considering sort of you know i guess sort of the relationship between you know the british um in sydney and aboriginal people um and the conflict i guess that are, that, are, that arose really quickly uh, between those you know uh, um up in that sort of part of the country and then sort of down newcastle um it's happening but you know sort of at a different speed and rate um and also, I guess you know, uh, um, you know, 
like you just mentioned, Aboriginal people sort of working as trackers to sort of uh, yeah. uh, track some of uh, the conf- uh, other yeah, the, the the convicts. Um, and then sort of you know um, towards the end of sort of it being you know nineteen uh, twenties uh, or nineteen sorry, 1820s or 1822, you mentioned earlier that, you know, after sort of it was sort of finished as the, as a penal colony when the lands were starting to be set up um, and, and, and being sold uh, to rich British pe- uh, British pastoralists. Um, yep. what sort of, what's the interaction now? Because I guess, you know, while the penal colony was set up, you know, um, you know, I guess there's sort of a designated area where everybody is, you know, um, and, and where they're sort of working you know, um, now that they're sort of giving out massive pastoral, massive pieces of land um, throughout the hunt, uh, throughout the Hunter Valley, um, I guess there's sort of now there would be more of a bit of a resistance from Aboriginal people because you know um, the Europeans are sort of going into sort of other parts of the land um, more often. Is that right? Um, and then sort of what what what, are, what can we be expected to see? What's happening in the um, around these times as well and has it changed from you know um the penal setup that they had in newcastle yeah yeah you're you're right with all of those things so what you find so in a you know when they start actually um giving out land it's an interesting thing that's you know like everywhere it's, it's a bit more complicated so they start giving out land to all the rich pastoralists that are coming in and listen these guys are getting a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand plus acres, like massive areas. And um, you know, for people who, who haven't grown up in the country, if you're wondering about you know how big's maybe a thousand acres, well, if you know somewhere like Sydney, Sydney suburb of Redfern is a hundred acres. So a thousand acres is ten times a standard city suburb. That's the kind of area we're looking at. Okay. Um, so, but at the at the other end of the scale, what we have, as I mentioned this guy, John Howe, earlier coming across from Windsor mm-hmm. with his Aboriginal guide and getting the farm. He's sort of an ex, well, he's a small scale farmer from Windsor and there's a lot of ex-convicts out at Windsor on the, on the river that are also wanting to get land. So you have two, two groups, one that are getting heaps of land by the government and, and you know, big farms and the other mob are small-scale ex-convicts who think that they should have a piece of the action as well because, you know, they've been working under the lash at someone else's farm for 10 years, so they think that they deserve stuff. So you have actually two groups, and they don't like each other either. So you've got that in the mix. But what happens is, at the start, again, there's not as much kind of resistance or violence. I think probably... Um, there's a lot of Aboriginal guides that are being used to find where land is and stuff. And I don't think they're, you know, like all these places, like Sydney was the same, it's probably not quite, uh, it's not clear to how many people are going to be coming. So, but once it becomes clear that there is, these farms are being set up and they're not going away, then resistance starts. And it starts pretty early. So in, in and around Newcastle with the first farms, by 1823, there are, farmers there that are um, writing to the government and saying that their their crops have been burnt or their their barn with all their harvest in it has been burnt um, their their corn and maize is being stolen and they're seeing Aboriginal groups and parties going through but it's pretty small scale but then when the bigger states start to appear that's when the resistance starts to kind of um, you know, stiffen really because it's those groups that are starting to build fences and to lock off the land and cut off the, the creeks. And, you know, the cattle, the head of cattle go from like a couple of hundred in 1820 to 150 odd, 200,000 by about 1825. So there's, you know, it's a much bigger, overwhelming kind of um, push into that Aboriginal, into that Aboriginal country. Um, and also, mm-hmm. The other thing you find in the 1820s, it's, 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 in terms of sort of frontier war, it's pretty quiet in the Hunter until about 1825. But one of the real fears that they all have, the British have, is that you've got all the war happening out at Bathurst um, and with the Radri people and there's martial law. And, it, you know, it's 
out there. It's full on. But you can access, you can get to that area. You can get out towards Bathurst and Mudgee through the Hunter Valley. You can go out through um, the Bylong Valley or Cassillis Gap, mm-hmm. as they call it, up near Merriwall. And the farmers up there in the 1824-25 period, they're totally freaking out because they believe that the uh, Radjuri warriors from Bathurst are going to come out and come through the gap into the Hunter and join up with the groups in the Upper Hunter. And so you get a sort of increasing um, tension and fear happening as that as the war in Bathurst plays out as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember speaking with um, uh, you know, Libby Connors, um, Stephen Gaps as well, um, and they and you know without or maybe without them sort of even mentioning it to each other, but you know they, they were saying the same things as well that you know, on the edge of sort of Rajuri country and the edge of sort of Gumroy country, um, Gumroy was sort of watching what was being played out down sort of in Rajuri country, you know, and there was a sort of fear of of, of, of the mob joining in. And, and I'm sure in some instances maybe they would have joined in or sort of would have spoken and, and sort of communicated as well. And then yeah. also, you know, that fear, you know, I remember speaking with nearly everybody on the podcast as well so far, um, that that's when sort of that sort of... Um, that sort of guerrilla warfare tactic was really heavily being played out by Aboriginal people, I guess, un- unbeknownst to them as well, you know, what guerrilla warfare could be. But, you know, um, having that sort of instilling that fear into sort of, you know, whether it was the pastoralists, the the soldiers, um, the squatters, whoever, you know, um, was sort of a massive tool that Aboriginal people, I guess, worked in, in um, in the advance, worked in the hands of sort of Aboriginal people um, in those times as well, um, sort of the unexpected. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, that, that really plays out in the upper areas of the Hunter Valley. So, you know, I was saying earlier that sort of below Singleton, so about halfway up, it's a pretty open country. Um, if you've ever been there, but if, say, I grew up in Singleton and you can stand and look one way for 40 k's and see the mountains and then you turn around and look the other way and it's 40 k's away and you can see the mountains. But everything in between that's flat as. But further up you go, the more rugged it gets and it's up in there where, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but that's where the real frontier, that's where the real, real war happens and that sort of guerrilla tactics like you're talking about is best suited for that part of the Hunter Valley because it's places that you can that Aboriginal people can go to and can, you know, hide essentially in and move through easily, whereas the British find it very difficult to kind of pursue them. Mm-hmm. But on the flats, one of the things about the Hunter as well is, is it's the, with Bathurst, at the same time as Bathurst, it's where the mounted police are first used. And that's why it's so effective out at Bathurst to use the mounted police because they're a cavalry unit and they can ride fast across the plains, which is what you can do in the middle of Hunter Valley, but once you get further up, you're up in the hills, and that's much more difficult. So it's a much more, it's a better place for people to be able to defend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Because uh, I remember in the, I think it was the fourth or the fifth, I had a chat with um, with Ray Kirkov, and and he mentioned um, the significance of the victory by Maltagara uh, in the Darling Downs area. Um, because of how they used the, uh, the terrain to sort of capture and, and sort of hold off on um, hold the um, other soldiers and sort of the squatters off um, in sort of this part of the country uh, um, in sort of what the area known now as sort of Battle Mountain as well. You know, they, yeah. they held a sort of the high ground and sort of they used the terrain as well. Um, and, and, and I guess you could sort of, you know, see that, that's how sort of, yeah, you know, uh, maybe massacres would have been played out as well as they would have caught, um, you know, groups of, you know, family and f- family groups, elders, young people sort of on this flat country, you know, camping, um, whether it was in the, in, you know, before sunrise, um, I think when, you know, uh, so, some massacres would be played out. Um, 
and it would have been yeah you know i guess on flat country where people would have been camped as well uh, but yeah, yeah but right. then like you mentioned yeah. you know once sort of they were in sort of this rough uh terrain you know this is when it worked to the advantage of aboriginal people in different parts of the country and i guess maybe that would have changed as well when you know aboriginal people started using uh guns and 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 also you know horse you know, horseback as well we see in different parts of the country how that yeah. sort of switches and changes and you know i guess sort of it sort of you know um, it equals sort of the playing field you know if you could call it that yeah that's right <clears throat> that's right but in the hunter it all happens much you know earlier than all that sort of stuff happens we have <clears throat> there's a couple of um, reports about aboriginal people having guns but there's none that i've come across at all about guns being used mm. by aboriginal people against the settlers anywhere mm. so it's all just a bit early because it's, it's still you know muskets and having to have all the gunpowder and the shots and the pellets and everything mm-hmm. i remember talking kind of... to callum on the first episode and I, I don't know if you mentioned it then but um like nearly after nearly every episode i'll always give him a call he's a good mate of mine and we'll have a yarn about some of the stuff i've learned and sort of you know some of the stuff he's he's been chatting with sort of other historians about as well and him and a few other people also mentioned that um a tactic that Aboriginal people would use would they would sneak up on the camps of, of sort of the the mounted police or the native police or wh- whoever, and they'd sort of pour sand or water uh, in their muskets and and then they'd wait for them in the morning, um, and then they would attack or even attack you know, during that time as well to sort of ca- catch them, you know, um, off balance uh, as well. So like you know they would sort of use these ta- these sort of other tactics to sort of you know I guess fight them you know, um, up front as well, um, using sort of, you know, um, traditional sort of battle weapons as well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, with the muskets, I think Stephen Gatz talks a bit about this as well. If <clears throat> Maybe if it's soldiers using them, it's one thing, but if you've just got a small farmer convict guy who's not very competent, you know, Aboriginal people knew that once the shot had gone, they had a, a certain amount of time to to get in close, so mm, mm, um, mm. find yeah. a bit in, being around the hunter that they they kind of wait back and then they then the then the fighting starts because they know that they've got a few uh, you know ten or fifteen or twenty seconds or maybe even a minute before the the guy can get his gun ready again. Yeah, now there's heaps of stories um, as well. Yeah, I remember Stephen talking about that, and um, when I was talking. I think it was to Libby because I know she done some some stuff on um, Tasmania and also I spoke with an Aboriginal brother from down that way in the f- second episode about uh, the frontier wars as well. Um, and then also it might have been Ray mentioning as well the tactics that Aboriginal people were using um, as well, you know, like they would wait, you know, for them to you know, fire off the shots, you know, or there would be like these safe houses that uh, convicts would have um, and they'd have like gun holes um, in the side of um, you know, multiple gun holes in in the house, you know. So when um, Aboriginal people would sort of rush the houses, you know, they could stick the gun out and shoot them. But yeah. you know, um, Aboriginal, like you said, you know, Aboriginal people sort of learnt how to sort of uh, learnt the tactics of sort of the weapons that they were fighting against. And once you know, once they knew that they would um, they would pull the trigger, and they knew they had that, you know half a minute or whatever it was to sort of get to them they'd always set somebody up you know to say hey you know i'm here you know shoot me then i would you know jump out of the way of the bullet and then you know they'd run and either cover the holes up and then attack or yeah you know even burn the houses down as well and you know do the sort of all these other tactics as well um yeah. i guess we'll sort of get back to sort of chatting about um uh, some of the stuff you know as well so um i think we were you were just chatting about sort of um how vast sort of the land um uh, that they were taking um and sort of this sort of created more conflict um as well uh, that the pastures was using um did this still sort of continue on with the coal mining uh, that was happening as well yeah but at this during this these this period, the coal mining is all in Newcastle. There's none none up in the Hunter like we know it now. That all starts up in kind of the 1860s and 1870s, so much later than all this period. Those massive coal mines that are there now, they're all much later. It's all in in actually Newcastle City, so that's kind of a totally separate separate thing that's happening in the Hunter. In, in out of outside of Newcastle, it's all just agricultural stuff. It's all um, it's mainly cattle and sheep, 
and and wheat and and corn and that kind of that kind of gear really. Um, mm, mm. They have found a bit of coal at this point, but they're not mining it. Yeah. And um, yeah, so no, it's much later that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I guess I know you know um, within your book, you know within sort of uh, the different chapters, you broke it up in as well. Um, oh, well, I've guess sort of you know were there sort of you know I, I guess you know like nearly everywhere you know they went you know it was sort of always you know a position to set up you know uh, a colony and then sort of go out and sort of try and find land you know a resource rich land uh to sort of make you know uh profits off of as well so you know like Sydney, um, or, or I guess like Western Sydney, there were sort of, you know, um, lots of places to sort of, you know, make profit off of this land um, as a result of sort of, you know, destroying um, the sites and, you know, the people that were already there as well. You know, yep. uh, this is a... 2020 has been like a massive year um, for lots of people in this country. You know, we've had the bushfires... Um, that sort of ravaged the country you know we've had you know this year marks 250 years of Captain Cook um, you know and not even just to mention you know COVID uh, as well but you know those two things uh, the bushfires won you know as as a result of sort of not sort of listening to sort of I guess the cultural knowledge and teachings of Aboriginal people um, you know um, you know the, the the huge amount of bushfires that you know engulfs sort of pr- practically in most parts of the country is as a result of sort of not listening to sort of this knowledge that Aboriginal people have, um, and then you know um, you know Australia coming out and wanting to sort of celebrate um, and sort of reenact the endeavour. Um, how important is it to sort of learn about this history? Um, you know, and I guess, yeah. Well, first, how, how important is this history uh, to sort of understand and um, and know about sort of what actually took place within this within this continent? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's vital to know this stuff. I mean, it's vital to know it for everywhere. But uh, for the Hunter Valley, one of the things about my book, and yeah, my book's not not the end of the story. It's not probably it's only just the beginning. But mm. people. Even when we talk about broader history of the colonial period, um, be it convicts or an Aboriginal resistance and the warfare that happened, the Hunter Valley doesn't get mentioned at all mm. in any of those stories. So for us, the first thing that's important about this is to even tell people that live outside the Hunter, but people who live inside the Hunter Valley at Newcastle and elsewhere, that this history actually happened. Mm. Yeah, they're living on land that was taken. They're living on land where the mounted police massacred people, where mm. Aboriginal people put up a fight that didn't give it away. And they're still there, of course. You know, mm. They're still Warramai, Wobbicle, Wanora, uh, Kamilaroi. They're all still, all those groups are still there. The people still live in the towns. Everyone's mm. still there. Wait. And currently, with you know, coal mining, the coal mining that happens there now that strips the, the land away. Um, so it's taking all that. Place and lots of Aboriginal groups and other groups, environmentalists and everyone, uh, that that sort of um, industrial removal of the country doesn't go unchallenged anymore. Mm. And one of the ways that can be challenged properly is if you know the history of the place. Mm. Um, Add to it. So these stories are important for that, for both of those things, but also the Hunter Valley fills in a gap in what we know about the frontier war as well for everyone, for Aboriginal people and for, you know, white population. And because, like I said, it's been forgotten. So when you, when people learn about the frontier, it's like, you know, fighting around Sydney and then it was out at Bathurst and then there was a Mile Creek massacre. And for most people, that's it. White people, that's the last thing they ever know of it. Um, the Hunter Valley story fills a gap there, and you can see how we got to Mile Creek for a start, and then you can see that it goes on from Mile Creek. So we've got to know the whole story. If you don't know the whole story, then you may as well know none of it, really. That's it, you know. And even for myself as well, like this has been a massive journey um, on discovering many different things um, that happened on the frontier um, that, you know, Aboriginal people had to endure or, you know, 
obviously you know the obvious one that Aboriginal people had to sort of sacrifice, but then also yeah. you know um, the amazing the sort of the resilience that Aboriginal people had um, and the tactics that they used as well. You know, like yeah, originally, totally. like this podcast. You know, originally when I was sort of thinking of all this, you know, I was I just wanted to sort of focus on, you know, like Pamoe and Dundalee and Yagan and Jendamara and Multaga and all these, you know, all these sort of different figures. But you know, like you just mentioned, you couldn't, you can't sort of tell a story about them without sort of telling, you know, the Hunter Valley story or sort of, um, you know, the story that sort of led to Bathurst or the story that sort of led to the Battle of. Um, you know, the massacres on Gomorrah country, you know, um, or sort no. of, you know, you know, how these sort you know, you know, the, the stories or the narrative that pushed, you know, these individuals like Pemway and Dunderley to sort of resist as well. Like, you know, there's, yeah, there's many amazing right. stories, you know, like, um, and you can see as you, as, and if you start to see all the stories coming together, you see how the resistance gets stronger and stronger because, Mm. Each new area that's being invaded by the British, each one has already got the lessons learnt from the one before. So, mm. the, you know, the words going out from these places through the Aboriginal communities and getting the next area more prepared for what's going to come. And, you know, the other important thing about people needing to know about this stuff is for, for Aboriginal people, for you guys, you know, you went through this. This is real this is the real story for you guys. Your families and descendants went through this. People forget, I think, as well, that when we talk about, um, well, you know, white people, I suppose, we forget that when we're talking about things like Pemaway or Bungary or in the Hunter Valley, there's um, Miles and um, Jackie Jackie and all these people, but they are people and they had families and they had clan groups and connections and all the rest. So mm. the impact was not just on one person, but it's on that whole group. And if if that story isn't told and if people don't listen, then that impact just keeps going and going for those communities. You know, if, you're, if your history is being ignored, then it's just one more thing you have to put up with. Oh, and, that's you know, it, you know. And, and I guess... Time that, to sorry. stop putting up with it. <laughs> For sure, because no. what history does is it gives you an identity um, yeah. and it gives you yeah. something to hold on and to connect to, you know. Um, and I guess, you know, that's why, you know, people want to celebrate Captain Cook because it gives them an identity of, of, of where they, you know, one, you know, uh, of, of a far distant land where they came to, but then also where they set up and, you know, generations. like you know, It sort of gives them a narrative of a connection of somewhere to go, you know, but that's sort of only one, that's not, you know, that, that's one story that sort of continued to be told for you know almost two centuries on this continent um and we're forgetting about sort of you know the 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 connection and the history you know what history does is it, is, is it informs you about the relationships that have happened um you know centuries before you and i were born um and yeah. it sort of informs us on on the relationships that we have now and that we're going to have maybe uh, into the future as well so you know mm. if we're not sort of if, if we're not knowing about sort of you know um one part of history because it's whether it's you know i don't think it's not it's, it's one thing to be forgotten but then also it's another thing to you know not to be not to be taught as well so um, that's right you know, yeah that's right when that it's happened, one, exactly that's it you know when, when when that happens you know like um it's easier for you know um people to sort of follow the sort of narrative of sort of um i guess sort of a falsehood identity that sort of denies one side of history um, and you know what that then does to sort of a people, you know, um, and but then also not just what that does to Aboriginal people, but then also the outlook that that has from other people coming to this country, you know, um, you know, like as an Aboriginal person, you know, we constantly remind people that you know, like we didn't sort of roll over and just sort of give up, you know, like um, and me personally, I didn't realize, oh, I didn't even know the resistance. You know, the first 140 years was full of resistance, you know, and that there was conflict every stop of the way where sort of the British, you know, went. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. average people, were like, hey, no, hold up, you know, like we're going to stand and fight um, yeah, as well. So, right. um, the, and and, that, and you know, that, that's why I think you know um, history 
is important and 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 I guess why I love you know doing this because you know I continue to sort of uh, be informed on sort of different parts of the country and, and, and what happened and sort of how that influenced the local area and sort of the local relationship between sort of Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people in those areas yeah. as yeah. well. That's right. And it's, listen, it's a great, it's a great journey you're on and it's a great thing you're doing because, you know, I, I'm, my area of expertise, if you like, is Sydney and the Hunter, but I don't know much about other places and I've listened to some of your, some of the podcasts already and just like, oh, right, I didn't know that. So it's, everyone's learning because of the work you're doing. It's really excellent. No, it is it, like, um, yeah, no, it, it's it's a privilege, you know, to have you know, yourself and sort of Ray and Callum and and you know um, uh, Libby Connors or sort of um, you know many other different people uh, on to sort of have a chat about you know the amazing work that they're doing. Yeah, you know, uh, my job is easy. I'm just sort of asking about the research that that that, that you've you done for years. <laughs> you know, I'm just having yeah. a chat for like fifty minutes at uh, um you know at the most with you. You know, you you are the ones that sort of you know have trolled through sort of you know the archives and the libraries and all these other different things as well so you yeah, know um, no, it's a credit to the amazing work that um i guess yourselves are doing as well yeah well no listen thanks for including me in it because it wasn't an area that um you know it's an area i'm still learning in and it's good to know that i haven't totally stuffed it up and that's going to help to to you know, fill in some gaps and tell some stories and maybe help people along a bit. So that's good for me to know mm. that uh, there's an interest there as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Now thanks for that, Mark. Um, you know, for coming on and having a yarn. Um, and just really quickly for anybody that is interested um, in purchasing or, or looking at some of the work that Mark has done in the past, the book is The Convict Valley: uh, The Bloody Struggle of Australia's Early Frontier. Um, and just, you know, Mark, um, do you know off-cuff off, off cuff where people can sort of get a copy or should they just sort of Google, you know? Uh, yeah, listen, if you, if you Google it, it, it's been published by Alan and Unwin, so you can go to their website and buy it direct or, it, you know, it's, it's on Google and it's in bookshops at the moment. So, um, yeah, look out for it. It'll be good. Buy it up. It'll be good. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely uh, I get that because, you know, the more that we know about the areas, it informs us on more than just sort of the history but the relationships and many things as well. It can teach us sort yeah. of how we can sort of look and sort of, I don't know, benefit a better future that is sort of yeah. based on one that sort of learnt history and not sort of forgotten or, or left, out, left out history. But now thanks for that, Mark, and it's it, it sort of... You know, it, it, it's been a pleasure, you know, to have a to have a, a, a this yarn with you and sort of share this space uh, with yourself. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Bo. It's been great.